This is the E-Commerce Brain Trust, a podcast about building momentum online for established consumer brands. Join our hosts and their expert guests for high-level conversations about e-commerce strategies, trends, and innovations. Access our Brain Trust and boost your brand's e-commerce potential. Well, hello and welcome back to the E-Commerce Brain Trust podcast. I'm your host, Kiri Masters from Bobsled Marketing. And today I'm joined by a special guest, Rick Watson, who I spoke with around this time last year. And Rick founded RMW Commerce Consulting after spending 20 plus years as a technology entrepreneur and operator exclusively in the e-commerce industry with companies like Channel Advisor, BarnesandNoble.com, Merchant Tree, and Pitney Bowes. Rick Watson's work today is centered on supporting investors and management teams, incubating and growing direct-to-consumer businesses. Most recently, in partnership with WHP Global, Rick was a critical resource in architecting the WHP Plus platform, a new turnkey direct-to-consumer digital e-commerce platform that powers andclient.com and josephaboud.com. Welcome back, Rick. Great to be back, Kiri. I can't believe it's already been a year. I was like looking back at my notes. I'm like, can that possibly be true? (laughs) Yeah, it seems like we interact a lot more on LinkedIn, which was my favorite place to hang out on on the internet. And you are so prolific on LinkedIn. Lots of ideas. You sit down and seem to put out something really thoughtful every day. And so you're always popping back up on top of my feed. <laughs> no, that's great. Yeah, it's just something I've made a habit, and I guess it's hard to break once you get into it. Yeah. Well, you had a pretty meta post, I think it was like six months ago, where you were talking about your daily post habit and how how you'd get comments from people saying, wow, I can't believe you do. I could never do this, and how do you do it? And you said, well, here's what I do. I just grab a cup, cup of coffee and I sit down and write. And that's the first thing I do every day. And it's simple, but it's true. It doesn't mean it's easy, but it's it's a commitment that you have, obviously. Yeah, exactly. And you now similar, I've always been a morning person. So if, if I'm going to do something, it better be first thing in the morning because later in the day, I'm like, ah, I'm get a little bit tired. And so anything I need to be a habit, I, I put in the morning. Yeah. I completely agree. This is my secret right now being on the Australian time zone is that I have while my son's at school, like a about a four, five hour time window to myself when no one else is online really. (laughs) And so I can catch up on things and write like today I did a post about Prime Day because we're one, one day in and I had all this time and space to think about it. It does mean I have to stay up until midnight doing conference calls, but at least I get all this this morning time to myself. Yeah, no, that's great. I think that's a good tip. <laughs> Move to Australia. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. We, we had to hit record before we were having a chat before we hit record and said, no, we need to just jump in here because there's so much going on. And I want to come back to a few things that you've posted about recently and, yes, sort of state of e-commerce, outlook for the future, and we'll see where things take us. Sounds great. Mm. So as of the time of recording this, yesterday 
you put a post up around what you're seeing next for retail and e-commerce and you pointed out the mega trend for you, which is that we're exiting a period where 100% margin optimization was king and entering a period where flexibility is more important. So tell us a bit more about how you came to that conclusion. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's any kind of genius realization here. I mean, e-commerce has been on a straight line up and to the right and, you know, even you know, the past 10 or 15 years. And so I think, you know, the planning cycles and the retail calendars have been fairly well understood. The big challenge, I think, coming out of the pandemic is people are really wondering, when do we come back? And I think it's going to be messier than that, because I think as a world, we are extremely interconnected. And what we're going to see is, you know, for instance, Canada is just starting to administer the vaccine. There's something like 10 or 20 percent. There's some, some countries that have sadly still don't have access to the vaccine. It won't have access to some time. And so many people have workers that are spread out across the globe, supply chains that are spread out across the globe. And so that's going to impact manufacturing. That's going to impact workforce, depending on where they are. And then even if the demand is back in one country, it doesn't mean that the supply is back and the intermediate steps between the supply and demand all have to be back for that to be some kind of smooth transition back to quote unquote normal. And so I think, you know, to me, this is a, the biggest news is for manufacturers is to prepare for the unexpected. And I think the last year is good practice for that, but I don't think it's over anytime soon. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting point. And I would push back a little bit on the question around profitability a little, and maybe it's a question that they're not at odds with each other, these two factors, but what I'm seeing among, particularly among the enterprise brands is a lot of questioning around how to make this e-commerce channel more profitable or even profitable in the first place in a lot of instances. Right. They've gone from a e-commerce being single digit percentage of their business. And at that point, it doesn't really matter so much if it's profitable in line with the rest of the business or not. And over the last 12 to 18 months, suddenly gone from single digit percentage of their business to a large percentage of their business. And suddenly the profitability of that division matters a lot more. And those teams and that accounting, that P&L is under much more of a microscope. And so particularly with these enterprise brands who are primarily selling to brick and mortar retail channels, they have a P&L model which is based on, on brick and mortar retail. And that doesn't always translate to an e-commerce model in terms of sharing costs and just the fact that so many digital purchases are in, so many purchases full stop now and did, uh, influenced by digital. And so this is a big piece of work that I have been working on with the, the Digital Shelf Institute over the last six months was actually this investigation into profitability in e-commerce and speaking with enterprise brands about what goes on in their companies, what are they seeing, what, what are the biggest challenges, what are they seeing work and not in terms of improving profitability. And I came up with a good list of, I think it was 21 
recommendations and things to look at, but there's no silver bullet really across all brands. Surprise, surprise. I mean, if there was. Oh, no, I was waiting for the silver bullet. <laughs> if there were, if it was. <laughs> Taking 18 months for us to figure that out would be a bit embarrassing, but that's why it's so, it, it is a really hard problem and a lot of really smart people are trying to figure it out but it's come to the forefront for these companies is my point. And they're desperately trying to figure out how to make their e-com channels profitable or more profitable. Yeah, it's interesting what, you know, I think there are a couple of points buried in here. Number one is e-com on its own is not that profitable. That's just a fact. <laughs> it's, it's an expensive thing to invest in. The employees are expensive. The supply chain is expensive. And so I think the companies that are profitable in e-com are either in a very high margin business, number one. Yep, like beauty. Or if they're in a, yeah, if yeah, exactly, exactly. Or if they're in a traditional business, they've found other sources of margin to make them work. For instance, hello, Instacart advertising. And so advertising, payments, you know, other things like this, these ancillary revenue streams, you mean, for instance, you know, the typical Amazon retail e-com business is, you know, 1% margin, hmm. you know, historically. And if, if Amazon, if that's the Amazon margin, what hope do the rest of the, the retailers have? I think on the profitability side, it's, it's so interesting. I think there are a couple of different points buried in here. You mentioned, you know, digital shelf and kind of my head goes to drop shipping a little bit. And I think, a lot of brands, including enterprise brands, have started to get used to this new reality where retailers are expecting brands to drop ship. It's no longer optional. Like if you want an order, you have to drop ship because that's how we're going to see what works and what doesn't work. And that didn't used to be the case before. Drop ship for sure for some of these enterprise brands is way less profitable than getting big orders. And so at the same time, they're being asked for drop ship. They're also being asked to take sizes of orders that are less than they used to yep. to sort of compensate for that. And so I just think it's it's fascinating that the their profitability is always is already a little bit under pressure. And a lot of these brands are, are sort of grumbling about that from, you know, m- many of them have sort of gotten their head around it, but it doesn't mean they're all 100% happy about it either. So yeah. Oh, there's, there's so many arms and tentacles to this. Even we haven't talked about retail media yet, beside your referencing to yep. advertising but that's another area where there's a known halo effect in retail media so a advertisement on amazon might influence a purchase in a grocery store for for a product and vice versa as well that's also seen it's talking with a colleague of mine who is a partner at a like a cpg brokerage and merchandising company and they go in and do product sampling and put the end caps in and things like that in physical retail stores. And anecdotally, their clients see a rise in their digital sales after in-store merchandising activities. So it goes, it flows both ways. And I think we're just starting to get a sense of that. And so the, the traditional P&L that's based on channels is, it's hard to get around that. I mean, how, how can you undo the way that a manufacturer P&L has been structured for decades and in a lot of cases is a publicly traded company and everyone's used to seeing 
that channel breakdown, but now also recognizing that there's a butterfly effect happening between all of these channels, especially as it pertains to merchandising and advertising. 100% that's true. And I think a lot of digitally native brands are finding that out, that pop-ups and seasonal experience stores are necessary to further drive growth in key cities and towns, key zip codes. You know, for instance, if, you know, North, Northeast Los Angeles is your highest demographic, you know, a lot of people have found that introducing stores will help introduce new products, especially if there is an experiential component to the brand where, you know, the category looks undifferentiated, except if consumers try it, they have a huge uptake that's been the key for a lot of brands, you know, to overcome competition where everyone's competing for the same eyeballs. No, everyone kind of looks the same online, but that's not true in person. Yep. Yep. 100%. Anything you want to, else you want to add to this topic before we move on? Because I've got a, got a few more things on my list. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, no. I mean, I think going back to the broader point about profitability, if you look back to the notion of optimization versus flexibility, I think you're quite right to point out that these aren't necessarily polar opposites, but though they do tug at each other a bit. And if you look at a traditional enterprise company procurement department and you know, they want to get better deals or to improve profit profit margin, which is what every CFO seems to care about, sometimes at the expense of growth or top line growth, is if you have 20 suppliers and you have terms at X, well, the first thing a procurement department is want to do is like, okay, how can we use five suppliers instead? Because you're going to get better deals from those five suppliers if you increase your order size to those suppliers. And that naturally tends to pull at flexibility a little bit because now you become more dependent on fewer suppliers. So that was kind of the broader point I was making, but I think you're quite right to point out that there are instances where the, you know, that doesn't apply. Mm, it's a good point. And there's this concept that we have at Bobsled. We talk about the, the Amazon iceberg. And when you look at when you're a consumer shopping on Amazon, there's things that are visible to you like product content and ads. And But to have your Amazon products actually show up in search and be buyable, there's all of these things that need to happen below the surface around operations and brand protection. And that goes back to supply chain, how you're selling on Amazon, the, the fees, who else is in your sort of distribution channel as well. So, yeah, it ties in pretty well there. Like we say there's you can have the most beautifully elegant <laughs> ppc campaigns on the planet and the most beautiful content but if you have flubbed your inventory projections it's not going to matter and everything oh my gosh it, you know if apart. there's one thing i yeah if there's one thing i wish i could broadcast to every e-commerce entrepreneur or even established brand is forget about advertising for the first year just fix your operations and understand how the business works, how are you going to improve service, implement the first 10 or 20 low-hanging fruit in your operations, then start ramping up your advertising. You know, you just see it over and over where people focus on the front-end experience and, and forget about the delivery. That is such a great point. I was literally just speaking with someone earlier <laughs> today about that very point. And enterprise company, they invested in 
from really slick front-end software to syndicate content. But their back-end systems and their <laughs> supply chain was a total mess and it was just putting putting the cart before the horse, for sure. To... Yeah, no, exactly. And, and it's even sometimes it's how they frame the project. It's like, oh, it's e-commerce. And then somehow in the first few months of the project, everyone just is only talking about the website. It's like, oh, how's the website going? And that really just becomes the shorthand name for the whole project, mm. which then, you know, unnecessarily puts too much focus on just the pixels on the homepage generally, <laughs> which is, again, fascinating because that's about 5% of the whole project. Yeah. Well, let's move on and talk about marketplaces, which is another one of your an area that you are so knowledgeable about and wanted to get your thoughts on some recent press that's come out about from the Wall Street Journal. We'll link up to this in the show notes, this article, but Express, Urban Outfitters and J Crew are just some of the recent retailers who have opened up market, online marketplaces. So I want to get your thoughts on this. There's how many marketplaces are too many and when should <laughs> retailers stick to their knitting and how should brands decide what marketplaces are worth their time? Yeah, I think it's interesting. In general, I think most retailers shouldn't necessarily create their own marketplaces or don't need to, you know, don't need to make a big deal about calling it a marketplace. Yeah, you could get more suppliers. And, but I think to the extent that do you need a multi-million dollar marketplace initiative just to add a, a few dozen new suppliers? Probably not. I don't know that the return is going to be there unless you're going to create something larger scale. In general, I think there's a bifurcation between very heavily trafficked retail websites that could use more supply. That's a good fit for a marketplace. Mm. When I think of startups, I can't tell you, Kiri, how many startups I talk to are saying like, oh, I want to build a marketplace. Well, why, why do you want to build a marketplace? Like, how are you going to attract buyers? And, oh, how much traffic do you have? It's like, well, I'm starting from scratch. Like, this is hard. <laughs> and I think it's harder yep. than a lot of people think. And I think the brands that are starting marketplaces are the ones that really I scratch my head over because, you know, J. Crew is, I think, just the classic example. You're going to the website. Why is the buyer going to the website? It's no secret they're going to buy J. Crew products. And then you're going to add these other brands on the site that people are finding accidentally. And then you're going to advertise against, you know, your 10 to 15% margin on, on those products. Do you really have a way to gain exposure for those products? You know, is ROI there for your, for your suppliers on that site? So I just, I just puzzle over the economics and the lift on the whole site, you know, from that. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And I think, it, yeah, so it's unclear for the shopper. It's potentially confusing and ero further eroding margins for the the retailer and also for the brands as well. There is a cost, there's a real cost of supplying these different marketplaces. There's the initial integration. You need to staff that somehow. Is that an internal team? Is that an agency? And then there's a big difference, especially with more of the 
established marketplaces between being present on a marketplace and actually doing a good job, you know, <laughs> like pulling what are, right. the, what are the levers available to be pulled here? What can we be doing with merchandising and promotions with this channel? And so you could do one or two channels really well and that will be 90 plus percent of all of your marketplace revenue and adding these incremental marketplaces is sadly, I wish there was a bit more competition here, but sadly, pretty low payoff. So I worry about the longevity of the suppliers on those marketplaces as well. Yeah, I I would much rather see those brands on some of these B2B wholesale marketplaces that are used to introduce buyers to new products like a fair or a jaw or a new order, you know, you know, because at least there you have the possibility of looking to get into a whole bunch of different retail chains and apply it out there rather than be on a niche marketplace that buyers aren't shopping on. At least your order volume could potentially increase and then your your buyers have some or your sales reps have a little bit more can concentrate their time on one platform rather than on 20 different platforms. Yeah, that makes sense. I think there are some good use cases. That article I mentioned referenced the Grummet, which is this kind of indie marketplace of, it's very curated and that's what's different. I guess the people shopping uh-huh. there especially are looking for things that you can't find on Amazon that are not mass produced, that are unusual and things like that. So that is a match made in heaven for for a brand. Yeah. You know, products that, that does actually make sense. I don't want to completely poo-poo the idea of it, but yeah, like <laughs> you said, going from zero to one with a marketplace is really hard and, and with some of these established retailers as well might not be like a super long-term priority for them. No, for sure. And your point about not on Amazon, I think that is the, I was reading an article about the marketplace fair, with I, which I think just raised another couple hundred million dollars or something. And one of their most popular searches is the not on Amazon filter <laughs> that their customers look at, meaning the retailers that are looking for new products to stock in stores. And I think they're mostly sort of small, medium-sized regional chains, not necessarily the big you know, the big box players. Wow, that's interesting. So if if you're a brand and you create a listing on FAIR, you can say, you can, there's a switch to say, yes, this product is sold on Amazon or no, it's not. And if it's not sold on Amazon, then it will surface when retail buyers are looking for the same that's right. Wow. That's right. That's smart. Yeah. Very smart. And and it's it's apparently the highest, the most used filter for obvious reasons by their buyers. Yeah. There was a time back when I was first getting started in this space in 2015, 2016 era, where I'd hear anecdotally from brands who were trying to get distributed in Target and some other big box retailers. And in the room with a buyer, the buyer would be pulling up the brand's Amazon page and checking their ratings and checking their seller rank to see as a source of validation is this product if this if this product sells well on Amazon it's going to sell well in store so now maybe it's the opposite opposite (laughs) yeah I think the signal here is the opposite signal is that they don't want to be price shopped for something just new in the store and they want a reason for people to coming 
you know, keep coming back to their store. Yeah. And so they're looking for something unique. Yeah. Yeah. Super interesting. Well, let's move on to another topic I wanted to to pick your brain about, which is Prime Day, which we're not going to recap performance of, of the event or anything like that. But I want to get your thoughts on these shopping holidays in general. There's a number of them now. Prime Day is the, the biggest one in the States, certainly. And retailers really crowd, crowd around that offer competing days. One hypothesis is that the Q4 Prime Day in 2020 was quite successful and that there could be a case for Amazon to have another event in Q4. Just wanted to see what you thought of that idea. Huh. Another Prime Day in Q4. I think I think this year is going to be a tough year for that, mostly because of supply chains. Most people are already worried about, I think, getting their stock in time for Christmas, all the orders that they've placed, you know, I would say generally in the past three or four months, they're trying to get it to land in August, September. And most of them are hoping that happens and are not quite confident that happens. And so if Amazon pops up a new shopping day at the end of Q3 or the beginning of Q4, I think most brands will freak out. (laughs) because they don't know what's going to happen with their supply chains right now. Yeah, for sure. And that was a huge concern last year because there was an international supply chain disruption and then there was domestic disruption with shipping carriers just saying, here's your limit for the quarter. We're not going to deliver any more of your packages after that. (laughs) Just crazy, crazy stuff going on. So yeah, that that does make that real people were concerned about that reload time between Prime Day and Cyber Five weekend, which which makes sense. Yeah, it'll be interesting. I mean, I think Amazon has always has some tricks up its sleeve that you know you never quite know what to predict they'll do. But you know, two Prime Days in one year, I don't you know we haven't necessarily seen that yet, but. You know, never, say never, never say never. You yeah. never say never in these things. <laughs> yeah. So I've got I've got two questions for you to, to close this out, which I totally stole from Tim Ferriss, if you know who he is, <sighs> a popular podcast. And he has these two questions I think are really great. So first one is, what have you changed your mind about recently? It's interesting. I would say one of the things is I, I think – how quick something like you know, last year I was writing more about Facebook commerce and it very much feels like Facebook has cooled on their own idea. Last year they were running tests on, oh, how can we get brands live streaming in Facebook? I think what they've determined is that Facebook is very much a consumer to consumer site. Instagram is a little bit different, obviously, and I think brands and influencers can be selling there. And it seems like even influencers selling bigger brands can be authentic if their message is right. But I think, you know, Facebook marketplace and Facebook shops, it definitely feels a little bit more like the Craigslist or Etsy replacement more than oh, it's going to challenge Shopify or Amazon or or anything like that. And so I think 
social commerce really seems to rely around the the irony is there are kind of two things. Number one is big events like drops and events and things that are exclusive, and then things that are scarce that generate a lot of attention. And so I think that idea of scarcity and social commerce really reinforce each other. So I think that's that's something that frankly I think could limit the live stream version of social commerce. And so I, I'm getting my head wrapped around that idea still, I believe. Huh. That's interesting. So you were more bullish on that in the past and now you're not, not so sure it's going to be a wide ranging opportunity for brands. Yeah. Yeah. I think it might be more niche than I originally considered. Hmm. And what's exciting you right now? I think the the things that are exciting me right now are all these investments in logistics and you know the last mile everything in between the store and the consumer is there are literally hundreds of millions of dollars of investments being made in retail by venture capital firms by players like Target and Walmart Amazon just introduced their large scale you know just walk out no checkout store in the US. And so I think all of these logistics investments are super interesting. You had GoPuff continue to expand in the US with, you know, another couple hundred million dollar investment. They just bought another last mile logistics firm. And so this idea of getting things to consumers in less than 30 minutes, I think it's going to put pressure. I'm so fascinated. I would love to like tick the clock forward about five years on Instacart and see how how do they respond to the new up-and-coming yeah. players in grocery. Totally. Yes. I'm right there with you. I'm so fascinated. <laughs> Here's my hypothesis, and I'm curious if you agree or not. There's a massive opportunity for Instacart to offer a white-label solution to retailers. Agree or disagree? I definitely agree. The question is... Will people trust it? Hmm. Yeah, that's part of the reason why people are shopping on Instacart to begin with, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And and there was some good, I referenced this in my Instacart for CMOs book, there was some great research by Barclays investment team around are there any retailers on Instacart that consumers would actually switch out of the app for? And there were only two, Costco and Sprouts. And for all of the other grocery retailers, Consumers would just switch to another retailer in the app if the retailer went off, went dark. That, that tells you something about the value prop of a lot of the retailers today is that they're just not considered relevant by shoppers. <laughs> that's right. that's a danger. That's a pretty dangerous space to be in. So yeah, you're right. I think the retailers definitely want a world to live in a world where Instacart is optional as not right now, but right. could but the then, like, I would say relationship with consumers? You're, it's a good question. Yeah, it's so it's so fascinating because it's not just similar to the brands that start an e-commerce investment and don't focus on their operations; they just focus on their websites. These grocery stores, it's they can't just adopt software, right, and transform their customer experience because. They're not going to be able to do that better than Instacart. They're not going to have the workforce, et cetera. So they're either going to, Instacart are just going to be there waiting for them because they don't have any better options. Yeah. 
or these vertically integrated grocers that were designed to get things to consumers in 15 minutes, like you see in Germany, one is called Flink. In the US, you see a few GoPuff and Joker and, and others. It's so interesting to see if, if these, what will be consumer adoption of these that, you know, because unlike Instacart, you're, to your point, you, the first thing you do is choose a store. If your store isn't there, well, what are you going to do? I'm going to choose another store. Well, now there's an option when you're searching for a product, it'll just show you which store it's about, which stores it's available in. So you don't even need to drill down into a store view first. Right. Becoming store agnostic to, to use Instacart, right. which is very scary yeah. for retailers. No, exactly. What are you working on right now that you'd like to share with, with listeners? Yeah, I mean, I still think for large companies, there are a couple of projects that I'm working on, large food and beverage manufacturer, actually in Canada, on digital transformation with regards to enterprise data and analytics, as well as direct-to-consumer fulfillment and supply chain. Those are, I think, interesting projects because it teaches you a lot about the importance not of just technology, but really just the people side of the equation and how that you can't transform a company with technology alone. You need to transform the people mm. because ultimately the people are making the selection of the technology and the adoption of the technology. So even if you select the right vendor, if you happen to, like whatever most experts think is the right vendor because whatever they're in the quadrant or, or whatever you come up with, and then you put it in one department, but it really needs to be adopted across five departments, what then? You know, you're going to achieve 10% of your ROI targets for adopting that platform to begin with. So the whole human component is still the tricky bit in, oh, I think, a lot of these transformations that people underestimate. Oh, this humans. Humans always getting in the way. <laughs> Pesky humans. <laughs> and you've got a newsletter also that people can subscribe to, right? Yeah, that's right. So on my website, you can check it out, rmwcommerce.com, and then click on the subscribe link and subscribe right away there. Great. We'll add a link to that in the show notes here. Rick, so great to talk with you again. We'll make sure it's not a year till the next one. <laughs> Thanks so much, Kiri. Always great. <laughs>